This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're starting chapter 19. In this passage, Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce. The goal of the question isn't to gain insight or knowledge, but to trap Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Of course, Jesus isn't trapped at all. Instead, he reveals the truth about marriage and its high place in God's economy. Pastor will cover the question of divorce next week, but in this message, we'll discover the gift that marriage represents and just exactly how God has designed it to be a blessing. It's so much better than our culture's version. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So follow along with me, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate." Before we even get into the passage, I need to make two disclaimers. You ready for this? Disclaimer number one, many folks in our flock have experienced divorce. Every time I preach on the subject because a Bible text comes, and by the way, I don't select the topics. That's the beauty of doing verse-by-verse study of Scripture. You don't skip around. So every time I preach a biblical text that addresses the issue, inevitably, inevitably, painful memories surface. But I want you to know that the divorcees in our church family are some of the godliest people I've ever met. Divorce is a redeemable problem. It's not always a sin to engage in divorce, as we will see here. And the folks that I know from this congregation who have experienced divorce have exemplary marriages or blended families, or they enjoy a life of singleness that is pure and fulfilling and God-honoring. And I want you to know that divorce outside the circumstances that we just read, or we will read more about next week, is a forgivable sin. That's the first disclaimer I want to make. The second is this. As I did with the topic of forgiveness, I'm going to explain and apply the general principles in the text because we don't have time to go into every possible scenario, every possible circumstance that people face today. There's a broad variety of specific circumstances in marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But with that in mind, I want to talk to you today about the gift of marriage, because that's what uh, Jesus is talking about here. We're going to talk about the gift of marriage today, and next week we will talk about the gift of singleness. But let's get into the text here, the gift of marriage. The first verse in this passage, in verse 19, indicates a change in scene. At the end of Christ's ministry in Galilee, he is on his way to Jerusalem at this time to be crucified. In fact, the crucifixion is months from this scene here. And chapter 19 also inaugurates the fourth narrative section in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew is distinct because it, it has narrative mixed in with didactic literature. The didactic literature are the discourses of Christ. 
We just read one in chapter 18. Now chapter 19 starts another narrative. Matthew is telling us what Jesus is doing in the dialogues of Christ, whereas in chapter 18, he focused almost exclusively on the teachings of Jesus. Now, in the previous chapter, Jesus explains his precepts or his prescriptions in response to inquiries from the disciples. But now, the opening scene of this chapter 19 features a challenge from the Pharisees. Remember, Matthew says they asked Jesus a question not because they needed information, but because they wanted to test him. They wanted to trap him in his words They wanted to discredit him publicly. And Matthew clarifies their intention to force Jesus to take one side of a heated debate of the time. That is the point. They wanted Jesus to pick one side of what they thought were the only two options of a heated debate of the time so that whatever side he took, the other side would oppose him. But also, there's another reason here, a more sinister one. Possibly, they wanted Jesus to experience the same fate as John the Baptist. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head because, specifically, he upheld God's standard for marriage. You remember the story? He confronted Herod for taking his brother's wife, Herodias, in an illicit affair. And as a result, he went to jail and was martyred. So they wanted Jesus to experience the same fate. And the reason we know that, church, is because Matthew tells us that this took place in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, which is well within the jurisdiction of Herod. But I want to make two observations concerning the gift of marriage, now that we know the context of of this conversation here. And this is all based on Jesus' standard of faithfulness. Remember, that's what we're talking about here, his value system, his standard. First, I want to talk to you about the sanctity of the institution of marriage. That's the gift of marriage, the gift of God to people. There's a sanctity about that institution. We're not going to get into the sanction in the institution, which is what comes next. We'll talk, we'll cover that next week. But today, we're going to spend the remainder of our time talking about the sanctity of marriage. Now, Matthew includes the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage immediately after Christ's teaching about reconciliation, precisely to exemplify the application of forgiveness in the most intimate of human relationships. And the reason we know that marriage is the most intimate of human relationships is because you become one. Jesus said that in verse 6, when you get married, two become one. So uh, although God allows divorce because of the hardness of people's heart, he still hates it. Malachi 2 verse 16 says that very clearly. I mean, Scripture could not have been clearer. God hates divorce. But one thing you will never find in the Bible is a command to divorce. Is that clear? You will read the thing from cover to cover, and you will never find a command in the Bible that says you are commanded to divorce. No, it's a concession. It's an allowance that God made in certain circumstances. There's only two. We're going to talk about them next week. But based on a gross misrepresentation of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which is a passage that warns people against marital defilement, the liberal school of thought at that time, led by a man named Hillel, it was a rabbi, that liberal school of thought prescribed men to divorce their wives for any reason that they would consider indecent. Because that word indecency is there in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Such reasons varied from burning a meal, that would be considered indecency, or not being attractive enough, that would be indecency in their mind, in the liberal school of thought, or even greeting another man would be considered indecency. So it was not exclusively based on sexual purity, but the conservative school of thought, equally wrong, by the way, held that indecency was exclusively limited to sexual activity. And the man, the rabbi that led that view was named Shammai. But to the disappointment 
of the Pharisees, he takes the conversation to the highest authority. And what he demonstrates to us is this. It doesn't matter what one scholar says or your favorite Bible teacher says. What matters is what the Bible says. So if whatever your favorite Bible teacher says, your favorite scholar says, whatever school of thought is common today, liberal or conservative, it doesn't matter. What matters is what the Bible says. And we will go there. And Jesus goes right to the beginning. He says, you claim to know the Bible. Let's open the first page of the Bible. Remember, the Pharisees were the self-proclaimed pastors of Israel, the self-proclaimed shepherds of the people. They claim to know the Bible. And Jesus says, have you not read? You missed the beginning, he says. So he paraphrases Genesis 1 verse 27, which reads this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So he paraphrases that passage. And then he quotes the other. He quotes Genesis 2, verse 24, which reads, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So right in the beginning, Jesus takes them to the foundational principles of human flourishing and human development as defined by God in his word. So it doesn't matter what Hillel says. It doesn't matter what Shammai says. It doesn't matter what the Pope says. It doesn't matter what your favorite preacher says. If what they say lines up with scripture, then we say amen. If it doesn't, we, we reject that. That is what Jesus is doing here. So he didn't fall for their trap. And by not falling in their trap, bringing scripture to the discussion and answering their malicious test with another question, Jesus accomplishes three objectives. The first one is he engages in non-sinful divine sarcasm. Have you noticed? There is a lot of that in the Bible. Now, we, most of the time, engage in sinful sarcasm. This is non-sinful, divinely inspired from the mouth of Christ sarcasm because it said have you not read i mean you claim to know the bible do you not know does the pharisaical bible reading program not start in the first page or scrolls and jesus takes them to the obvious jesus points out to them the obvious according to genesis 1 verse 27 that he paraphrases you ready for the obvious church 20 years ago i wouldn't have to say this but now we do here's the obvious people can only exist in two genders <laughs> did you know that that is what Jesus is saying. That's the obvious. People can only exist in two genders, which God has assigned from eternity past. In other words, you are either a he or a she. There is no Z, Zer, X, or anything like that. You are either male or female. You have chromosomes of a biological male or you have chromosomes of a biological female. That's obvious. That's the first objective that Jesus accomplishes. Here's a second by quoting the account of creation and the purpose of marriage in verse 5, Jesus clarifies that God is the one who regulates the institution. According to the divine and therefore the only acceptable definition of marriage, a biological man and a biological woman are to unite together in matrimony until one of them dies. That is the plan. That is what Jesus says. That's the definition of marriage. They celebrate that spiritual union by Practicing physical intimacy reserved exclusively for the confines of such a lifelong commitment. Do we understand that? And the Bible says, from the words of Jesus, to become one, which means a husband and wife retain their individual personalities. That'll never change. God wired you differently than he wired your wife or your, your, your husband. So you retain that personality. Don't try to change that, but to become one. And from that point on, you operate as a unit. You retain your individuality, but there is no more I. There is we from now on, us, this family. 
What is best for this family? Not what is best for me individually. Two becoming one means you retain your individualities, of course, but you now operate as one family. One cultural evidence of that, at least in this country, is that you take the same last name. Now, the visual example of that are your children. Children provide the visual aid for that union. They carry the facial features of mom and dad because they share the DNAs of each parent. But the point is, we are one, and that is by divine design. And your children reflect that oneness. And the word that Jesus used in verse 6 to describe that oneness is the term that means yoked together. The picture here is two oxen pulling a cart in harmony going in the same direction as one. Because if one of them tries to go right, the other one tries to go left, what happens? Crisis happens. Now, no one has permission to undo this divinely ordained setup. And that's the point that Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one undo. Attempting to undo that will cause permanent damage to both spouses. Now, let me give you another picture for you to consider. When you glue two pieces of paper together, because that's another image of this here, the cleaving metaphor here, the leave and cleave. You cleaving means you, you're gluing together with another human being of the opposite sex for life. It's a commitment that you're making for life. You are glued forever now, at least until one of you dies. And what happens is when you try to separate them, you will cause irreversible damage to the paper. Try that. Do that experiment at home. Glue them. Wait for them to, to dry and try to separate them. The piece of one will remain in the other and so forth. So the lesson for us is this, church, unless you are willing to honor God's standard for marriage and live by his definition, you commit to your spouse of the opposite sex for the rest of your life. Unless you are willing to do that, don't get married. Singleness is a perfectly legitimate option. But here's the third objective that Jesus accomplishes here in not falling for the trap of the Pharisees and answering their questions with another question. The two candidate views of that time concerning marriage and divorce and remarriage fell short in representing God's perspective. And therefore, Jesus embraced neither. But what I, what I want to show you is this. He sets the example for us in worldview formation. I want you to understand that very clearly. Those of you who are perhaps new in the faith or young, and those of us who need to make adjustments in our worldview, here's the standard. We form our worldview of the world, human flourishing, God, self, and others based on Scripture, not on the available options out there proposed by society. Are we clear on that? So next time somebody asks you your opinion about any of these issues here, your answer should be, have you not read? Have you not read what the Bible says? And you don't have to be sarcastic. If you can duplicate the, the, the divine sarcasm, go for it. But I, I doubt that you'll be able to. Just go with compassion. And say, have you not read that God has already determined these matters? So my position lines up with what God says. And when you do this, you will be challenged with rebuttals like this. Well, but politicians disagree. Or you need to drag your Bible into the 21st century. Or celebrities have a different opinion. You're on your own. You're a minority. Or our culture says something different. To which you may reply, I really don't care. God's unchanging word has already settled these issues from the beginning of time. And they will never change. In fact, that God's word will never pass away, the Bible says, although the world is going to pass away. And speaking of the unchanging word of God, let me take you back to the book of Genesis to show you why biblical marriage is a gift from God. Because that's what we're talking about here. Jesus is talking about this wonderful gift where two become one. 
And in the Genesis account, the creation account, we read that God made the first man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. You remember that story? This is not poetic. This is history. It's telling us what happened. So in the beginning, God created man and placed him in the garden. Life was alone for Adam. And the Bible says in Genesis 2 verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So right there is a definition. It was not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. So he gave, God gave our patriarch a divine anesthetic and performed the very first surgery in history and fashioned a woman, bone of Adam's bone, flesh of his flesh. Now imagine the situation here. Adam is waking up from his divine anesthetic here and he saw a human face for the first time and a beautiful human face co-representative of the divine image, someone he could talk with, he could interact with. He couldn't do that with the animals. And there is no other way to fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply the earth unless you have a husband and a wife, unless you have a biological man and a biological woman. Now, the world mocks that reality. They abuse that reality. They try to redefine it. They neglect marriage. They look down on the institution. They laugh at it. They scoff at us for upholding that. But Scripture says this, Proverbs 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So to all my married brothers here, no matter how bad situations get in your marriage, if you have a wife, you have a gift from God. You find favor from God. Think about that next time you complain about your wife. Now, yes, marriage can be challenging, And you will be at each other's throat from time to time. Some people more often than others because of personalities. And because you have two sinners sharing a bed, a bathroom, and a bank account. Yes, that can be challenging. But let me list some of the blessings of this gift. Okay? First of all, if you are married, you have a unique opportunity to grant and receive true forgiveness. More than ever before. Possibly on a daily basis. Number two, another blessing of marriage, the gift of marriage. You have a unique opportunity to reproduce Christ-like love for one another. And let me read you that definition from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Any other type of love is a fake, is a counterfeit. Understand this. Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So in marriage, you have an opportunity to demonstrate that and receive that more than ever before. Also, in marriage, you have an opportunity to experience spiritual companionship that you'd share with no one else. Number four, you enjoy physical fulfillment because that is God's gift for you. It is reserved for marriage only and for your wife or for your husband only. Anything other than that is considered fornication. You watch children grow. That's another blessing. You raise children together. You grow old together. You go through the phases of life together and you navigate adversity as a team. You lose a job. You lose your health and you experience that as a team together. And longing for these things is a good thing, church. Feel free to pursue marriage according to God's view in His terms, in His timing, and in His conditions. And speaking of His conditions, I'm going to share some of them with you and we'll close with that. Number one, you make a commitment to unconditional faithfulness. Before you even propose, guys, before you buy that ring, what you do is you commit 
to unconditional faithfulness to that woman no matter what, and vice versa. Ladies, before you say yes, before you, you allow that man to put a ring on your finger, you commit to conjugal faithfulness, exclusive and mutually exclusive faithfulness. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says this, marriage is to be held in honor among all. So we honor the institution of marriage. And he continues to say, the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So you commit to that faithfulness, knowing that through your life you will face temptations. That's part of life, part of living in a fallen world like we read last time. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but you commit to faithfulness no matter what. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on having butterflies in your stomach. Those of us who have been married for more than a year know than this, the butterflies are gone. The honeymoon's over. But the point is, you commit. Number two, you abstain from premarital physical intimacy or extramarital physical intimacy. That's God's definition. This is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 3. Again, 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's commentary on the issue of marriage and remarriage because the people of that church asked him about it. And he says this, concerning the things about which you wrote... He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's talking about the physical touch, the sexual touch. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. So there's a sense of duty in fulfilling physical needs of one another. The Bible says that very clearly. Now you commit to that. You commit to fulfilling those needs. Number three, do not cohabitate. The proverbial shacking up. So common in our culture. Even if you promise each other that you will not sleep in the same bed, that you'll sleep on separate beds or separate rooms. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, Paul instructs, flee immorality. Flee immorality. And engaging in physical intimacy with someone you're not married is immorality. So flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits, it's outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. And furthermore, Paul instructs believers to avoid even the appearance of evil. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. I mean, even given the impression of evil. Number four, do not marry outside the Christian faith because that's what Scripture says. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. So based on that, you shouldn't even date an unbeliever. So ladies or guys, if you're dating an unbeliever, break it off. Don't even start the relationship. And here are some of the problems that I've encountered of unequally yoked couples, people who have not followed this principle here of marrying an unbeliever. Church attendance, the unbelieving spouse will say, well, no, I want to go golfing. What are you talking about? I want to go traveling. You want to get involved in church? You're stealing our Sunday mornings. Use of money. The unsaved spouse is not going to want you to tithe or to contribute to the church. Philosophy of raising children. There's going to be tension between sending children to public schools that I call indoctrination camps or private schools. The amount of alcohol and drugs in the house, that's going to be a source of tension. The type of entertainment that the family consumes, the kinds of friends you allow in the house. These are all problems that happens when you marry outside of the faith. But here's some encouraging words for you if you are in this situation. The Bible says if you are married to an unbeliever, you have a gift from the Lord. And here's how Scripture encourages you. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 14. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. In other words, he says, the Lord didn't cover that. But Paul is saying, under the authority of the Holy Spirit and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the apostolic authority, I cover this. And it says, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. 
And the woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send the husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. So in other words, if anybody is in this situation here this morning, you are the light of Christ in your own household. You may be the only Christ-like influence that your spouse has, so don't leave, don't divorce, because you never know if God will be gracious to you and grant the conversion of your spouse. That may happen. I've seen it happen. may or may not happen. But the point is, we know that the Bible says where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. And number five, if you do get married, husbands... Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5, verse 25. It's sacrificial love. Wives, be subject to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. In other words, this is not a bullying situation. You subject to your husbands in a sense that as you are subjecting to Christ. You subject to his definition of the leadership in the house. It doesn't mean you allow abuse. It does not mean you are doormat. That's none of that. What you do is you submit. By the way, we're all called to submit to one another anyway. So this is just emphasizing that in the place of, of marriage here. And that's Colossians 3 verse 18. But you may say this, Pastor, I, I have already botched all of these. What I say to you is this, friend. Welcome to the club of imperfect people. Be encouraged. It is a redeemable situation. God is going to honor you if you honor him. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.